I hate art. Okay, not like art itself. I hate doing art or painting. I'm just like awful <laughs> and I want to be good and I have a vision about what it could look like in my life, but man, do I suck. So often it like, it makes me angrier than almost anything else that I do. But what I do appreciate is that the way artists are able to express what's happening in our present cultural moments. When I think of what's happening today, I don't actually know if there's any artist that expresses that better than a guy named Franz Kafka. You've probably never heard of this guy. He's been dead for almost 100 years, but he is a Czech author whose story is pretty sad and tragic. It's marked by suffering and sickness and shame. But in those things, he was able to craft this writing style that was absurd and humorous, but also quite dark and tragic. He starts a parable with an emperor on his deathbed who has a message for a hero. But rather than the story going towards some epic heroic adventure, the messenger never makes it. He's just stuck constantly sifting through crowds and is never on his way. And then the hero, just the last line says, is just looking out the window, unaware. The Metamorphosis, one of his most favorite one of his most famous stories is about a man who wakes up as a giant insect, but rather than some sort of whimsical adventure about what it looks like to now be an insect and what other things you can experience, the man ends up being trapped in his room by his own family. It's a story of self-loathing. It's a story of a family that is trying to push him away. It's a story of him eventually starving. It's a story of him still being worried about work and the pressures of life, and it's a story of when he eventually dies Seems like his family's better off now. It's sad, it's dark, it's tragic. Kafka's legacy is one of absurd humor. It's one of exploring shame and darkness. It's, authentic, it's, it's authentic, but it's also a story that is really marked by a lack of hope, by shame, by self-loathing, by looking for life, but really seeing that it's meaningless purposeless, without direction. I think what expresses this best is that Kafka mostly wrote short stories, but started three novels, got very close to finishing them, but never actually did finish. It seems to me and to many others that uh, this is actually representative of Kafka's view on life. That in the same way that he was never able to finish a story, it actually embodied the way in which he himself was living under the assumption that life itself did not have a grand overarching story. Where do we see this today? Well, actually, in the contemporary art scene, this is everywhere now. If you have been to a place like The Reach or any other museum, any other fine art museum, you've seen this. I recently went to The Reach here in Abbotsford, and you'll love this. Uh, one of the primary displays was soiled diapers and used napkins encased in glass. Or another one, cockroaches on a wall painted with gold. Again, if you're familiar with the scene, you'll know that this is about deconstructing the assumptions we have with life. It's about um, questioning whether or not there is a common direction, questioning our basic building blocks of meaning and purpose in life. See, the world according to Kafka, the world according to our artists today, is one without direction. It's one without story. It's one without meaning. It's one without hope. It's one without life. Welcome to Central Heights Church.
This probably is not the dark thing that you signed up for today, but here's why I want to start that way. I have three assumptions as we jump into our message, which is going to be in Psalm 30. Assumption number one, we live today as if there is no grand overarching story to our lives. Assumption number two, worship is fundamentally a storytelling enterprise. And number three, Without worship, and here I'm referring to worship of the triune God who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit revealed in Jesus Christ. Without worship, there is no life. That's where we're going to be in Psalm 30 today. So if you have a Bible or a device, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 30. Um, these are not assumptions that I'm just building myself. As we'll see really quickly, this is just coming out of not only Psalm 30, but just the entire story of Scripture. Uh, and and that, is, that is what I want us to dig into today. So Psalm chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. I will extol you, O Lord. That is, I will worship or I will praise you. Why? For you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. The fundamental lens that we are working through for this next however much time we have together, two hours, two hours is the amount of time we're spending together. Buckle up, just joking. Uh, we want to look at worship as storytelling. That is the lens that we are going into today, and you see that right at the beginning. David begins in this psalm, this song of worship, saying, I will extol or worship you, Lord. Why? And then he gives the reason. He gives a story from his background. Lord, you have drawn me up. You haven't let my foes rejoice over me. I cried to you for help and you have healed me. He goes throughout his history and actually pulls out a story. This is consistent with how the Psalms, without the songs of worship, Israel's history, the New Testament, how they understand worship as part of a grand overarching story. You cannot worship unless it's within the context of a story. Think of it this way. Worship is storytelling in the same way that music is a composition. So I'm going to sing four notes and see if you recognize them. Da, 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 da. You got them? A few of you might. Let me, uh, it's, it's music. It's music at this point, but it's not really a composition. So let me, let me sing a little bit more. Da, 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 da. You got it? Da, 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 all together. Da, 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 just joking, we can stop now. Hopefully most of you, maybe not all of you, but hopefully most of you by this time recognize that as Imperial March from Star Wars. I don't know how many of us live under a rock, but Imperial March from Star Wars. In the beginning, you might have recognized that song, but instantly, the moment where you recognize it is where you can place it within the overall composition. And if you can place it within the song Imperial March, you're placing it within the overall movie Star Wars. Worship's the same way. Worship is about telling a piece of a story, and it's in inserting yourself into that singular piece that you are, you are brought up and wrapped into the entire story. Now, if you didn't recognize this song, here's all that means. You are not worshipers of Darth Vader. Congratulations. But it does have implications for those of us who are unfamiliar with the story of Jesus and the difficulty then of how we can worship. Here's how you see this in Psalm 30. So as I already mentioned, verses 1 and 2, David is specifically attaching himself to personal lived experience of the work of God in his life. Story. 
Next, you see at the beginning of the psalm, it's, this, is, this is how the psalm starts. It's a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. So this song, later after David's life, had been taken by scholars and said, we want to use this song when we dedicate the temple, the location of God's presence on earth, when he dwells specifically with his people in this geographical spot, in this building we have built for him. They place it within the story of God's work in Israel. You take the psalm book as a whole. There's 150 psalms broken into five different books. Why do they call them books? Book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. Most scholars assume and believe that this is because they are trying to match Israel's worship text as beginning with the five books of the, of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They want their songs of worship to match the foundational texts of their story. You could even say in uh, verse 3 that David sings the song of his, let me get this right, great, 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 grandson. Let me try again. Great, great, no, I'm just, <laughs> just joking with you. His great descendant down the road, Jesus of Nazareth. Hear these words and think if you can recognize the story of Jesus in them. Verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, that is, from the land of the dead. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. David at this point would have been singing about his experience of a lifeless type of life, of being so stuck in the depths that it just feels like he doesn't have any desire to live anymore. But it's hard to read this on the other side of Jesus of Nazareth without thinking of Jesus' work on the cross in his resurrection of actually saving us from death and sin and evil itself. He sings the song of the crucifixion. He anticipates it down the road. This is our job as worshipers. This is what we are called to in worship. If you want to continue the idea of thinking of worship as storytelling in the same way as music as a composition, we are all just cover bands trying to sing the greatest song of all time. That's what we're here to do. So what's at stake, though? What, like, this is interesting, but why does this matter? Well, there's a haunting quote from Alistair McIntyre that I would love to read for us. We are never more and sometimes less than the co-authors of our own narratives. Only in fantasy do we live what story we please. It is an illusion that we would be in absolute control of our lives. It is an illusion that we would be the ones driving our story. It is an illusion that there is not a greater story that we would have to insert ourselves into. This is actually what Kafka and other fine arts contemporary artists warn us about, is assuming that we have absolutely control and dictation over what's happening in our lives. But I think what artists like Kafka miss is that there has to be a space between absolute control of our lives and being totally hopeless, because those are presented as the only two options. And this is exactly what the story of Jesus is about. It's about that space between our own control, our own hopelessness, and the story of Jesus fits right in the center there. 
And it's worship that inserts us into that story. It's worship that wraps us up into the story of the God who is the one who is in control, who comes and who deeply loves humanity, who deeply loves you so you are not left hopeless. It's the God who rescues us from the stories of Kafka. If you don't see this, just look at your life. Look at the dreams and then look at the disappointments. Think of all the ways that you would have imagined life would be different, whether this is thinking of your financial picture and the amount of work that you have to accomplish to actually stay afloat, whether this is your marriage and the dreams you had envisioned for that, your kids, your work, your free time, your hobbies, your joy. Many of these things are shaped by our own decisions, but so many times it's shaped by things beyond our control. You know what that's called? It's called being human. It's called living in that space where we are not the ones in control. But because of the story of Jesus, that does not leave us with hopelessness. So we want to, as worshipers, insert ourselves into the story. Otherwise, all we'll be left with is used napkins and soiled diapers. So how do we do that? Well, as David transitions forward, one of the fundamental acts of worship is found in gratitude. Let me read verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Worship and thanksgiving is actually the original title of this message. Thanksgiving, gratitude, and worship are joint at the hip. Uh, you see this in early Christians' acts of worship. They would gather around what we call communion or the Lord's Supper today. This was their gathering place, not primarily a space of singing and preaching, though that would be a thing that they would likely encounter as well, but they would gather around a table to take in the Lord's body, what is actually bread, and in the Lord's blood, what is actually wine. And they did this in remembering the story of Jesus. It was their worship gathering to remember. You know what they called this worship gathering? Eucharist. You know what Eucharist means? Thanksgiving. That in the beginning and still to this day, worship and thanksgiving are joined together at the hip. And this makes sense. Like, I think gratitude is what actually positions us to actually be storytellers in our lives. So I can look at nature and I can think it's nice. I am learning more about how I like birds chirping and how that puts me at peace. I can say, man, I really enjoy this. But it's in gratitude that I am inserted into the story of a creator who's actually the one who made those birds. Thank you, Lord, for this gift for this rest, for creation, for these friendships and these relationships. Thank you for the gift of life. Now, this doesn't come naturally for me. Uh, I am by nature pretty independent. I'm pretty cynical. I'm not someone who is uh, very attuned to just always thinking and seeing where God's at work and being grateful for it. But you know where that changes? It changes in fasting that in this space where I'm intentionally limiting the amount of food that I eat and I am growing weaker and I could step into bitterness, but I'm intentionally trying to position myself for worship, man, do I become way more aware of God's presence and am I, I am so much more grateful for everything that he's given me. 
I think that's what you see as uh, what gratitude is built for in verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and then the switch, and his favor is for a lifetime. Again, weeping may tarry, that is, may it stay longer than we would desire. Weeping may tarry for the night, the switch. Joy comes with the morning. See, in this space of worship and thanksgiving joint together, we were actually able to step into darkness and see that there is still a good God who is wrapping us up in his love and who's purposed everything in creation for good. Worship entails gratitude. And gratitude births worship. Now, there's something called positive psychology, which explores the psychology of gratitude, which looks at gratitude as a positive thing that you can do. This is not surprising. It says, yeah, the more grateful you are, the benefits you can see in your mental health, in your relationships, in your goal setting, in your career, in your livelihood, even in your own physical health, gratitude can help benefit. And I'm not surprised by this. Last 500 years since the Enlightenment have been built around taking the good things of Christianity but pushing away the worship. And here's what I think is missed oftentimes in our idea of gratitude, is we just think if we can become more grateful ourselves, then our lives will get better, and you just can't do it. You cannot keep up the pressure of constantly, constantly needing to be grateful. But when it's part of a greater scheme, where it's actually about saying, this is not about me, I'm so grateful for who you are, it's actually about I am less than you, God. I am grateful for the way in which you have given me gifts beyond measure. That is where life is found. David goes on and talks about ways in which he's missed this story of worship and gratitude in verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, never a good time to say anything, I shall never be moved. Oh, how many of us have made that mistake. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. David, in all of his confidence and gusto, thinks he's got it figured out. He's on top of the mountain and then realizes, wow, if God is not there, I have nothing. This is the, uh, this is the group in the movie, the scene with the dynamic swagger of a group that's got everything figured out, scheming and planning about some sort of mission they're about to accomplish. And you, you just feel the confidence in the room. And then they say those fateful lines. What could go wrong? And of course, everything, everything can go wrong. You have this type of story, I'm sure, in your life. I certainly do. I remember uh, Sarah and I going camping, Sarah, my wife, going camping uh, a while ago with some friends. And it was one of those things where we're just like working hard to get to that point of camping, trying to finish everything we're doing, whether it's school or work, or just like have a few tasks to finish. And then we reach that moment where we're going camping with friends and we're just so excited. We get on the ferry. We're just waiting for them to show up on a little bit of a later ferry. Well, unfortunately, they missed that ferry. So we had to wait a little bit longer on the other side, just kind of hanging on our beach. Fortunately, the ferry that they caught meant that we would no longer have time to get to our campground before the campground shut. Okay, shoot, so where are we gonna stay now for this first night? Well, we find a friend's dad's friend's acquaintance and end up staying overnight at someone's house. This is on the island. Uh, staying overnight at someone's house in Nanaimo that we've never met before. Uh, while we're there, one of our friends that we're going camping with uh, ends up vomiting all night. 
we wake up the next day and we're still wanting to go camping. And then uh, we, we realize we actually don't have everything we need. So we have to go to Superstore and pick stuff up and we grab stuff. We're like wasting time still back on the road. Realize we still didn't get everything we needed from Superstore. So we have to go to another one that's on the road and like go back into the, the parking lot and again waste time and go to Superstore. And then finally we get to this site. And we're there and we're, we're grumpy. Did I mention that I can be independent and cynical? Well, I can also, uh, can also be someone who, if I haven't had a good sleep, I can be uh, quite <laughs> easily irritable. And I know all of you like young parents, you're just rolling your eyes at me. This like <laughs> newlywed without kids knows nothing about being tired. I totally get it. And yet still I was very irritable. We're trying to play a game, waiting for our food to get ready. Sarah and I are just like fighting about the rules over this game for 20 minutes. Truthfully, I hadn't played the game in 10 years, so I didn't really remember how to play, but I just knew she couldn't be right. <laughs> um, we were like trying to find eventually after eating, we're going to a beach, but we don't know how to get there. So we're like walking through this river that we think is gonna turn into water. We're just like, we give up eventually. We just like find a bank on this beach and just lie there. And then when we're walking back, we're like, oh, what's around this corner? Sure enough, lake, beach, direct pathway from our campsite. Like it was just, it was just one of those stories. <laughs> Sure, you have a story like that too. These stories remind us that we have no idea where the blessing of life is found. See, we can think that, oh man, I've got this figured out. Like if I just get these details in line, my life is there, I've made it. Man, we have no idea where the blessing of life is found. I think we're often, like Hosea 2.8 says, if, let, me, let me just quickly flip there here. Hosea 2.8. And she, this is referring to Israel, she did not know that it was I, that is God, who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, that is a false god. She did not know it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. We are experts at misattributing the blessing of God, at totally missing who is the one who gives us every good gift. I like to think of the presence of God as air and worship as the act of breathing. That life itself only comes in worship and that it's in worship we are, where we are actually breathing in the presence of God. Worship is the breath of life. Dallas Willard puts it probably best. Worship is the single most powerful force in completing and sustaining restoration in the whole person. As David reflects on this mistake, as he remembers the fact that, man, it's God who gives every good gift, he draws into a type of worship that's perhaps unfamiliar. Read this and see if this sounds like your typical idea of worship. Verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Is that what worship looks like to you? Is that how you imagine worship? I think oftentimes our picture of worship is built more around joyful praise than it is in David's words of, I cry 
I plead? What profit is there in my death? Be merciful? Is this worship? See, I think worship encompasses more than we think. And this has become pretty popular in church circles to be aware of that, that our worship is uh, oftentimes not what would be a full picture of the story of Jesus, of what scripture would invite us into. But I actually think we perhaps uh, point our finger at the wrong issue. Uh, so typically what I hear when people complain about worship and worship music is that it has an issue when we start to sing about humans and about ourselves than when we sing about God. And so we just need to focus more on praising God. And I understand the sentiment, but let, uh, let me just read out to you the first verse of Israel's songbook of worship. Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Does this psalm eventually turn into recognition of the importance of seeking God? Yes. But it's not fundamentally about focusing less on humanity and focusing more on God, though that's true. The primary issue is about telling the story of God. You could say more so the issue is that we've only learned how to sing one part of the story. We've only learned how to sing the part that is happy and joyful, that makes us feel good. If we go back to the song imagery, it's like we have one part of the song stuck in our head and we can't remember the rest of it, so we just like keep singing that one part over and 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 over again, and we're just stuck there. David here comes in uh, Lament, which our pastor David talked about last week. So if you want a much better exploration of Lament and Confession, go check out last week's service. But he comes in acknowledging the way in which he misattributed the blessing of God. And then he asks, God, I need you. I plead for mercy. Is this worship? Yeah. Confession of sin is considered to be one of the most fundamental acts of worship. He talks about the dust praising you. He talks about God, I actually am not the one who's on top of the mountain. You've made me from dust, and it's not the dust that's to worship. You made me from dust so that I could worship you. Will the dust tell of your faithfulness? That's been my job. God, be merciful to me. Forgive me. This is worship. David's stuck in that place, which I think really defines sin really well. In verses 6 and 7, he explores the reality that sin is basically clouded judgments and actions that displace the centrality of God. Uh, you see this in Augustine and Luther's idea of humans being turned inwards. So there's an image on the screen right now about what life is supposed to look like on the left and the way that sin actually would twist that on the right. So life is designed to be lived outwards. It's designed to be lived towards God and towards others. This is what Jesus teaches in the greatest commandment, that we are to love God and to love others. And sin, Augustine and Luther would say, is fundamentally about turning that direction inwards and focusing it on ourselves in selfishness, in rooting our lives in our own ability to control, in our own ability to master what's happening in the world, in our own independence. Did I mention I'm independent? I say with David, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. Forgive me, Lord. O Lord, be my helper. 
Help me out of this. Worship encompasses more than we think. But worship is also the end of the story. Read verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Literally dancing. I love this. G.K. Chesterton once wrote that if there was a society that did not have dancing, he wanted no part in it. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Such a typical way for the authors of scripture to talk about the work of God in taking moments of weeping and sorrow and turning them into joy. This is his final end point for life. That my glory may sing your praise. Why does he do this? That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Worship is the end of the story. It's where all of life is headed. I think right now we are kind of like when it comes to worship, we are like fish learning to swim. And it might be, feel awkward and you might see other creatures around the earth not doing it and so you're wondering, why should I be doing this? But at the end of the day, a fish only experiences life in swimming. It's swimming that allows the fish to actually go and see all the different anemones and the different other types of fish. And it's in this that all of its life is now defined. That's where we're headed with worship. And when we step into worship, when we insert ourselves into the story of Jesus right now, we are proclaiming the day that this is actually going to be all that's left one day. Everything else can be taken away, but not worship. I think one of the dangers, though, uh, is marked by Syndrome from The Incredibles. You know this? He has this line uh, where he's the villain in the first movie, and he is talking about some of the damage that superheroes can cause. And so his idea is to give it to everybody. He has this line, if everyone's super, no one is. As we uh, are in this series in 168 Discipleship, Rhythms That Lead to Life, that talks about wanting to follow Jesus in all 168 hours of the week, I actually think this could be a danger that we could fall into as well. See, if worship is everything, it's nothing. Worship is specifically about being inserted into the story of Jesus. It's about the ability to take normal circumstances and recognize the way in which they are part of a greater story. This is why singing is so central to worship. Because we are literally storytelling in our music. Everything can be turned into worship, but only in the act of story. Lament is grief placed within the story. Confession of sin is when we acknowledge guilt and place it within the story. Friendship can be worship if it's placed within the story. Your financial stewardship can be worship if it's placed within the story. Our work, our vocation is worship when it's placed within the story of a God who has made us to labor, to steward what we've been given and to bless others. This is worship. So in all that we do, we are called to worship. which means that we can sing the song of Jesus in whatever we're doing. We sing the song of the crucifixion in our tears. We sing the song of the resurrection in our joy. We sing the song of the ascension in the way that we say, listen, Jesus has been able to be with the Father as a human. This is the destination of our lives, is to be as humans, as bodies and flesh in the presence of God, and we can do that right now.
because of what Jesus has done. So tell the story, sing the song, and stay away from soiled diapers. <laughs>